Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today we're actually doing something a little different. We have an interview, but it is with an old friend of mine who I'm lucky enough to know because he knows a great deal about historical menswear. His name is Jason Merrill. And Jason is one of those people who looks dapper just about any time you see him. He is never, ever sloppy. And he knows a lot specifically about gentlemen's accessories. Well, and I'm also really excited. This is yet another thing that you've recorded and I have not heard yet. So I'm extremely excited because so many of our fashion episodes are about women's fashion. So it is great. We're going to have a men's one. And since we are coming up on Halloween, when, you know, people might want to go with the historical look for their costume, and then it's the holiday season where maybe you might want to upgrade your look with a little bit of a historical flair, perfect time to discuss how all that goes together. Yeah, and uh, this is really just a chat. It's an interview, but it stays very casual. You'll discover early on that Jason and I have known each other a very long time. And it is really full of fascinating little tips and tidbits, so you're going to get a lot of interesting knowledge that you may not have expected. In this first section, we're going to talk a little bit about Jason's backstory and how he got into historical clothing. And there are also some little trivia bits in there, including where ties come from uh, and how military clothing influenced men's fashion. So let's hit it. So now we have a delightful treat in that we have a special guest and in studio, no less. Uh, And it is uh, a good friend of mine, Jason Merrill. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I had a revelation recently that I have known you almost 20 years. Yes. (laughs) It has been that long. Jason, uh, just to give you a brief backstory, was the, my husband's roommate when my husband and I met. So Jason and I have known each other for a very long time. And it doesn't seem like it. It seems no. like I just met you recently because we see so little of each other, sadly. Right. Normally once a year at Dragon Con, and yep. that's about it. If you tape together all of our interactions, <laughs> it might equally well, year. I don't know if you remember this, but we were moving. I was moving out the same day you were moving in. I do. And it was literally passing in the door with boxes. <laughs> I do remember. Uh, it was me and my crazy herd of people. But we have Jason here today not to talk about moving or our history, but instead to talk about something else from history, which is gentlemen's accessories. And he's really kind of a pro because he lives the gentleman's accessory historical lifestyle. Uh, I do my best. I try. I think you do well. So first, uh, will you just tell us a little bit about sort of when you got interested in this and s- specifically when you got really interested in gentlemen's accessories? Some of it goes back to this was 98 when my wife, Julie, and I, we were getting married and she was having a dress made and I already owned a tuxedo. I was not going to wear something I already owned to my wedding. I wanted something fancier. Right. And we both thought that Victorian style was a little more formal than formal. Right. So I had a uh, a waistcoat made so I could wear a pocket watch, a little double-breasted waistcoat, and a calf-length velvet frock coat. And as part of that, the seamstress made several waistcoats as samples. And I really liked wearing those waistcoats around due to the reaction that they got. So I've been, I was kind of wearing steampunkish type stuff long before that actually became a, a thing. Right. And then from there, I had some friends that threw a Lolita convention a couple of years ago called Frill. And they wanted to do some gentleman's programming. And I offered to come in and talk about accessories and how to tie ascots and bow ties and things like that. And In my search for samples, I had been buying lots of things off eBay so I could get a wide variety of items. And I ended up doing a table at the convention because the boyfriends and husbands and what have you had nothing to, (laughs) you know, it was all frilly dresses and all of that stuff. So I figured out, let me give them at least a little oasis in the middle of everything else. Nice. And so from there, I've been looking into, you know, I've I've started a little sideline where I, I, sell such things. You're a purveyor. I am a purveyor of, <laughs> of gentlemen's furnishings. Uh, so do you have a favorite era in men's fashion historically? Um, it kind of slides, mm-hmm. but I do like the Victorian and the Edwardian because that really is a much more uh, formal, more elegant 
era, shall we say. But the just the gentleman stuff through the 20s and 30s and back when men actually wore hats. And, <laughs> and I look horrible in hats. I just I've not found a style that actually works for me. That is sort of when men's fashion kind of got an upgrade. Yes. In terms of like there prior to that, it was largely the military stuff where men really got fancy outfits. Well, and but... that's that's primarily what has driven your uh I guess, uh, casual, not casual, but your, your non-military gentleman's wear, the public life. Right. Takes its cue from the military life. And yeah. that was back, um, in the Napoleon era. Mm-hmm. Women really liked the look of those soldiers. That's a dashing figure. That's right. a really nice, like, very appealing, um, silhouette. Right. And, the the guys that were not in the military started taking their cues from that. They would wear the tighter trousers and they would wear the the uh what we call a tie actually came out of the Croatian military. Right. And their cravat. And that became a very popular public thing. Nice. Because you, they're emulating. A lot of it is driven. Correct. You're a lot not of the military it is and you still want the women. Yes. <laughs> You have to emulate the style that they're into. Uh, What do you think is the best starter piece for someone who wants to kind of borrow from historical gentlemen's fashion and add a little Uh, historical flair in their ensembles day to day? I guess there's there's two answers here. One, for a lot of guys, it would be start wearing button-down shirts. (laughs) Take that first step and actually start dressing a little nicer. But once you're once you've gotten comfortable to those sorts of things, I mean, I think a pocket watch is is a great, you know. Now, admittedly, you'll have to be wearing like a waistcoat or something like that. Right. But your jeans have a watch pocket in them. Yeah. And there are the ribbon fobs that are specifically meant for that type of thing. Gotcha. That that short pocket there, either at the waist or in the I have a suit that has a watch pocket built into the waistband of the pants. Yeah, I've made uh trousers for my beloved that are the right. same that are historical yeah. trousers. And when you you'll look at old pictures and you'll see that little ribbon coming from underneath the waistcoat mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't understand what that is. I think that's the case with a lot of historical stuff. You're like, I have no idea what's going on there. Yeah. But then when you actually take a peek, you realize, "Oh, this has right. great utility." Well, one very simple thing, for example, if you're used to wearing suits all day, but you want to take it to the next level. A little collar bar oh. that holds the points of your collar together. Now, with a bow tie, it's almost completely hidden. But with a straight tie, you see the edges of it peek out. Peek out. Nice. But what it does is it holds your knot up higher. Ah. It, it, it holds it all up and straight in a really nice it not that it really droops otherwise but it really does it helps the tie pop but that little glint of metal on both sides and the fact that it's a tighter sharper appearance yeah it keeps your collar position so crisp that you kind of can't help but look one it makes you look like you have great posture even if you don't yes and two you just look a little more put together yeah i love it well i have to admit when when i put on my suit or even like a waistcoat it's like putting on armor, mm-hmm. you know, and you do want to present your best appearance. You want to you'll straighten up and you'll, you know, it just it just helps yeah. present that united front. See, that's why I like wearing historical corsets. You can actually be slumping, but no one can tell. <laughs> right. It's all fixed that's, and held in place. <laughs> that's the same with a, a well-fitted waistcoat. One, one thing that drives me absolutely nuts is seeing gentlemen wearing a waistcoat. That is too small. Oh, and it's so pulling it's, really it's awkwardly. Very, it's pulling very awkwardly across the front, but you also have shirt blousing out from underneath. <laughs> and it's supposed to be this smooth silhouette. Right. Don't do that. <laughs> Just make sure your shirt's tucked in and your waistcoat actually covers your waist. The whole point of the waistcoat was to hide your waist. So you shouldn't see your belt buckle. You shouldn't see... The edge of your shirt poking out on the sides. That's just completely opposite from 
the purpose of the waistcoat in the first place? Well, you've kind of jumped the line on one of my questions, oh, but you also gave me an idea on another question that I'm going to ask you sure. later. So my next question was going to be, and since we've already covered the um, shirt sticking out from under the waistcoat, <laughs> uh, you can go to something else if you want, which is, are there any major pitfalls that newcomers to historical menswear really need to be careful about that they may not naturally think of? Um, well, fit. Fit's very important anyway. Right. And a lot of people just don't understand, you know, the reason why your Hollywood stars look absolutely fantastic in just a T-shirt and jeans is that it's been tailored to them. (laughs) They have shoppers who know their measurements, and they know that if they buy something, for example, if they buy a shirt that fits in the shoulders, you know, across the, the back, everything else can be taken in and tucked and tailored and what have you. So knowing your measurements and knowing what what does fit and what you can get altered means when you start to wear uh, historical stuff, like the waistcoat, you'll know the proper length. You'll know to get something that's not too big so you're swimming in it and not too small that it looks like you're about to bust out any moment. Well, and this gets into that area, and it happens in both menswear and womenswear, where um, there's a little bit of um, vanity shrinkage in your measurements. Yes. And some of it is aspirational. Some will say, ooh, I'm going to drop five pounds, and then this will fit perfect. But if it takes longer than you think, or if your life gets busy and you can't maintain whatever your eating and exercise regimen is, you basically, particularly in historical garments, which are usually a little bit pricier if you want to get quality, you have basically spent money on a thing that makes you look like an happy sausage. Well, but as an example, I have a, a vintage suit I bought and I got it via eBay UK. So it had been custom tailored for someone in the 60s. It happens to fit me perfectly because I've got really weird measurements and <laughs> they had really weird measurements and that's how I got it by auction because nobody else bid on it. Oh, that it makes sense. It wouldn't fit them. But the when you're having something like that made, you take into account that you're going to drift sizes. Yeah. So the the pants have built-in suspenders. Right. They're just, you know, elastic and adjustable. But they also have the side adjusters. Mm-hmm. So if your waist slides up a bit or slides down a bit, yeah. you have those side adjusters. And when you're buying things like, oh, you know, jeans or a suit these days, it's pretty much that size and that's it. But if you if you are careful and you know what to look for, you can find them with the side tabs and things like that. One of the things that um, uh, I had never noticed until recently was, and this is just an odd sideline thing, but uh, James Bond, Dr. No, mm-hmm. he always had his, Sean Connery had his suits made by a guy named uh, Anthony Sinclair. And he had the pants done with the side tab so he was never wearing uh bracers or right. or a belt but he would button his shoulder holster to the unused button huh. on his pants where these side adjusters were and i had always seen the you know i remember him buttoning you know or unbuttoning his shoulder holster and taking it off yeah and i was wondering what that button was and then <laughs> later on I, you know, I was reading about his suits and it's like, of course, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. But it, I had never, you know, as a kid seeing it, you have no idea. I also just love that there's a place to read about his suits. There, um, there's an entire website devoted to the suits of James Bond. Of course there is. And it is a brilliant resource, not just for, you know, what he's wearing, but the history behind the various yeah. cuff styles and... You know, why he was wearing this particular type of tuxedo jacket or ensemble at a particular point in time. I love it. If you had a magic wand and you could choose one historical fashion or grooming practice, and this could be men or women, that could be brought back into the modern era, what would you pick? Um, that's actually kind of hard because a lot of what used to be done mm-hmm. is still being done. It's just not as widespread. Right. You know, I think every gentleman 
or want to be gentlemen should go and have a straight razor shave. Oh, yeah. Or actually go for the whole package. Find a find a salon that, you know, get a trim, but get a straight razor shave, the full deal with the hot towels, but get a manicure at the same time. Pamper pamper yourself. I mean, women (laughs) do it all the time. Guys, we need to do the same thing. And I can't tell you how relaxing it is to have that, you know, the hot towels on your face and just nice and calm and having a, a professional shave like that. It all, it helps you realize what you can be doing at home. I mean, yeah. when you're, when you're a guy who shaves, it's something you're going to do every single day. So you might as well make it something that's enjoyable. Turn it into a bit of a ritual. Nice. And while you don't have to do, say, the hot towel yourself, you can pay attention as they're doing their routine and you can go, okay, well, they use this pre-shave oil. Maybe I can try that. And, I shave with a double-edged safety razor at home, but I do the pre-shave oil. I have a brush. Gotcha. I use. I like um, experimenting with different types of shaving creams and preparations and what have you. But there's something really comforting about a, a really, really hot brush and oh, thick yeah. lather going on, and it's just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, particularly if it's something where you really like the scent of the shaving cream. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's to to help start your day. It's like, okay, this is nice. I had never thought about that, but it makes sense. You know, it is a great ritual and it's, uh, and, and I'm with you. I think everybody should get equal pampering opportunities. Yeah. Uh, so I love it. Oh, get a nice straight razor shave, gents. Uh, so. Here's an interesting thing. Um, you kind of alluded to this when you mentioned that there are a lot of grooming habits that we've retained over the years. And we know menswear, similarly, has not gone through the same wide swings in terms of trends that women's wear mm-hmm. have, has. We know at no point did you attach cages to your behinds to look huge in the posterior. Uh, do no, you, but, but we, we shoved ourselves into pants that were far too tight. <laughs> we so, still do that. Uh, yeah, I think we all do. Uh, do you ever feel like you wish... That menswear had had a little more variety. Like, do you ever feel like you got shafted in terms of your options in historical clothing? Not really. I mean, it's, yeah, you could think that, well, but it's, it's, it's a hard thing to say because there have been attempts at it. Right. And they've just never stuck around because there's nothing like that classic suit. Yeah. Now they shifted over time. You know, obviously yeah. they're, um, I guess one of, one of the best examples of casual slash sporting items shifting into business wear is the button down collar. Brooks Brothers brought that over in the 1800s because they saw polo players doing that in England. <laughs> and they would sew buttons onto their shirts to keep their collars from flapping into their face while they are playing polo so basically that's sportswear <laughs> but, but it was now brooks it's brothers. considered such fancy pants unicorn clothing option correct brooks brothers has made that into a fancy option and i, I have to admit i see you know uh publicity photos of ceos and they're wearing button-down shirts and i'm just like shaking my head <laughs> you can do so much better what they need is a a little uh, collar bar. Correct. And that would Although, solve that problem. I, you know, now that I've got the collar bars, I've also realized the last couple of French cuff shirts that I've bought mm-hmm. have very widespread collars. Oh, with so the you spread can't collar, use the you bar. can't use it because the collar's meant to be spread. But that means you've got more options for the knots on your ties. You, you can go. make it, you know, you can make them a little thicker. You need to balance your length of collar. With your right. tie knot, you need to balance the length of your tie with the lapel on your jacket. Yeah. You don't want a you know massive 70s tie with a thin 60s what? collar. What? You don't? No. Which kind of makes me chuckle. Uh, and I'll t- tell you a side story about I was working on a video shoot completely unrelated to work as a favor for somebody. And one of our characters had to have his tie, just a regular tie, tied. Mm-hmm. Any knot will do. There was only one person on the entire cast and crew that could tie a tie. Oh, my heavens. 
I can do them, but it's real floppy jalopy. It's not really good for film. So we had to call in the pro and right. have him tie this poor boy's tie. <laughs> I um, I was going to an event. Uh, it was for for an anime convention. Was throwing a, a semi formal. Mm-hmm. So I was walking up to the event, and someone came running up to me and said, "Can you tie a bow tie?" And I'm like. Did you point yes. at the bow tie you were wearing? Well, I, and I was wearing it, and I was like, yes, yes, I can. That's and they just... brought their friend over, and I showed them how to tie the tie. And I ran into them later at a completely different convention, and they were like, bow tie guy, thank you so much. <laughs> See, these are not I, difficult skills, but people have not, lost them. It, it took me forever to learn how to tie a bow tie, and I was doing things a little backwards mm-hmm. and I watched all the videos and I just, I couldn't figure it out. But then I ran across a vintage, uh, diagram on how to tie an ascot. Ah. And this is the, the version of an ascot where you've got the knot in front and you cross, you know, you pull it through and you cross the pieces and you do a tie tack or a, right. a an ascot pin to hold it all in place. And they, the way the diagram was done, one side of the tie was white and the other was black. And it was looking at that going, oh, well, here's where I've been doing it wrong. And then I realized my I bought a uh, basically a casual bow tie because I've been trying with a black silk black tie. I mean, an oh, actual right. official black tie. And I t- tried the casual one and I got it immediately. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I mm-hmm. tried a couple of times and I kept getting it. I swapped over to the black tie. And it was smaller. Oh, yeah. By about a half an inch. So the tolerances were much less. And I can tie it, but I have to be a little more careful. And I realized that right. I was poke, trying to poke, you know, one piece through the other, the, the wrong direction. And that's why it kept just coming apart on me. You just needed a starter tie. Yeah. Like your training wheels tie. <laughs> and I, I keep meaning to have a friend make me one that's like that. I want to have an ascot made that has one side white and the other side black and the same with the bow tie. Oh, that's brilliant. And the same with the long tie so I can show people that's how the, to tie these. That's things. the panel you need to do at cons is yeah. tie tying. Well, I I do um uh a basic gentleman's accessories panel and then I talk I talk about how to tie ties and ascots and what the differences are and how to do your ascot pin. You know, because it's it's not as simple as just sticking it through. You have to go through the front layer. Right. You have to go through the inner layer. You have to go through your shirt. Right. Back out through the shirt. Back out through the inner layer. Right. And then pin it. So every, and a lot of people is nicely don't know, in place. Correct. A lot of people either just do it through the tie itself, and therefore it still kind of flaps around. Yeah. Or they'll do it through, and they'll poke it right out the front. So you see the, the pin cap right. or end cap. On the outside of everything. And oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And really, you want just the the decorative bit showing, and not the not the utility underpinning. Part. Nice. So, um, I'll diverge a minute. So quickly, yeah. the difference between a cravat and a tie and an ascot. The uh, basically, and this happens with just about everything, is the terms become generic over mm-hmm. time from people either not using them correctly or just misunderstanding. But basically, the uh, Croatian original is what gave us the term cravat, which now means just about any type of necktie. Your ascot is a particular style of necktie where it's got two blades. For example, your standard long tie has a wider end and a thinner end Mm -hmm. that goes behind. An ascot has two blades of the same size with either just a thin piece of cloth in the middle that goes behind your neck, or it's all the same width. Gotcha. And that thin piece just has been um, uh, gathered right. and stitched. Or I've seen them sometimes pleated down, kind Correct. of almost pleat, decoratively. Pleat was the word I was looking for. So that's it's pleated, and that's what goes behind your neck. Gotcha. And then with the... Just like with your long tie, there are many different knots and ways to tie it. With the ascot, you can tie it like a bow tie, and then you pull the ends on through. Right. And that gives you the pieces that you can pin in down in front. Gotcha. You can leave it like a big bow, 
if you wish. Which I think there's an iteration of the Joker that did that. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> then there is the, um, uh, you can tie an ascot like a regular long tie with basically a, a Windsor where you just flip the end over and then flip Up it and through. through. Yeah. So it gives you, it looks like a standard necktie knot. It's just you really should be wearing a waistcoat with that because it's only about this, you know, it comes down mid-chest yeah. right there at your sternum. And it looks kind of silly if you're not wearing anything over or it. Or jaunty. Um, right. Well, waist- but you can also tie it like a, a neckerchief. Right. Or just Like Fred from it. Scooby-Doo. It, well, yeah, just loop it inside your collar. Yeah. Uh, when you mentioned waistcoat right after talking about how words have gotten a little dicey and fuzzy, I will tell you a brief story of I was making a costume for a gentleman. It was a, um, a Victorian version of a, a comic book figure that he wanted to do a custom. And we had been talking all this time and there were things he was saying that wasn't they just weren't making sense to me. And then I realized he didn't know that waistcoat did not mean your coat. That it was more mm. like the vest piece. So right. those things yeah, come up all the time. Yeah, vest and waistcoat are kind of interchangeable, and you have to make sure people, yes. you know, you're on the same page. Yes. It's like, okay, when you mean this, you are talking about this item yeah. of clothing. <laughs> yes. So um, this one, I know your answer because you talked <laughs> about it briefly beforehand, but what, in your opinion, is the most uncomfortable historical men's garment? The um, The collar. In, in the... Old style, detachable, very stiff collar. Those things are crazy stiff. Like the, exactly. you can almost use them as a tire. The the invention <laughs> of the soft collar is one of the greatest. You know that should be celebrated from the rooftops. Praise innovation. It, for uh, for our wedding, I did have a detachable collar shirt. Yeah. And by the end of the day, it had cut me at the back and sides because I just wasn't used to wearing one. Right. And wearing them for long periods of time is really uncomfortable. Now, the the other one that goes along with that would be sock garters. Oh, oh! Do you get dig into the skin? It removes hair, <laughs> particularly over time. It'll just wear a thin spot. Gotcha. Because once again, you're not used to doing it. Right. Huh. And I I still can't decide whether sock garters are. The perfect application of scientific principle to a fashion need or just out and out comedy. <laughs> or because the third option of torture. Well, yeah, they are torture. Well, but a, a lot of, of fashion is torture devices one way or the other. Your collars, your tight corsets, your. Well, you know. a good corset shouldn't hurt. Like well, my, and that's I'm like the proselytizer, of course. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why people are resistant to wearing fancier clothes is whatever experience they have had with them in the past has been uncomfortable. Yes. They would get nice shoes to wear to church every week, but that would be the only time they would wear them. So for two hours on a Sunday, you're cramming your feet into these things that may not have fit perfectly. Right. But you're not wearing them enough to wear them in. Right. Or you're, you know, having to wear a shirt and a tie and your shirt collar may not be the proper width. So it's a little too tight and then you add a tie on top of that. But if you're if your clothing fits, it's comfortable. That's yeah. why fit is so important. Yeah. That, and that comes up a lot, particularly in historical garments, I think much less so than modern clothing, where fit is super important, but we have a lot more knits in the mix. We have a lot more stretch and ease baked into patterns. Yes. Whereas <laughs> when you wear a fitted historical garment, like the arm's eye, that circle that makes up, you know, the armhole where your arm and your sleeve meet, uh, if that is like tight on like a Victorian garment or um, like an 18th century gown or something, if it's off just a little, raising your arms is almost impossible. But if it's right. in the right place, you have pretty smooth range of movement. Yeah. It's just, it's- but it's also it, when you're doing the, the historical clothing, for the most part, it's being custom made for you. Yes. And you can make sure things fit yeah. appropriately where when you're dealing with vintage clothes – you really need to know your fit going in first. Yeah. You need to know your sizes. Um, so now that we've talked about the uncomfortable stuff, what is the most comfortable item of menswear that is no longer worn, in your opinion? Uh, well, uh, honestly, the ascot. 
Yeah. When you're a nice <laughs> silk ascot tucked into your shirt, I mean, it's a much more casual uh, look than a full tie. Right. And it's so very comfortable. Uh, people just don't, you know, there's a reason why you, well, they are still worn today. I mean, that's, none of this stuff has truly completely just flat out disappeared. But ascots are, are really comfortable. Um, so I'm going backwards a little bit because of the question you made me think of when you talked about the shirts poking out from under the waistcoats. What is your thought on the mix of kind of modern and historical? Like, does it make you crazy to see someone in a T-shirt and a really nice waistcoat? Or are you down with kind of mixing up the the eras a little bit? He's making a face, so yeah, well, I think I know the answer. <laughs> I, I used to, when I was in college, I would wear T-shirts, you know, like a plain white T-shirt and a waistcoat and uh-huh. things like that. I think it has its place, mm-hmm. but you shouldn't be trying to make that more than what it is. Gotcha. That's all a casual look. Right. Now, at the moment, I'm wearing what I tend to wear normally to work, which is a waistcoat, a bow tie, you know, a, a nice white dress shirt, and uh, nice dress shoes, right. polishable, you know, black leather shoes. But I'm also wearing dark colored jeans. Yeah. And it's basically, I think the the overall rule is that you can add one less formal item to an ensemble. More than one, then it is very much casual. Gotcha. And it depends on where you're going to be wearing this. If you're going out for an evening with friends, th- that works. You know, a nice, a nice blazer over a solid color t-shirt. Mm-hmm. That's a good look. Yeah. You know, particularly if it's maybe a, the t-shirt has like a higher collar, right. like a mock turtleneck type of thing. But that doesn't work in a situation where you really should be wearing a tie. There it's just, go. it's, it's, to me, it's situational. I don't mind the mixing, but it's, it depends on how far you're trying to take it. Right. It's not appropriate for all venues. Correct. Correct. And dressing well is a sign of respect for both the people you're going to be meeting and interacting with, but you also need to respect the event itself. Oh, yeah. And and this is something I run across because I run a, a black tie invited formal event for Anime Weekend Atlanta. It's still a formal event, even though it's at an anime con. Right. Yes, you can wear a costume. But it needs to be what that character would wear to a formal event, not just because you like this character and you want to wear what they wear, but you need to think about the tone of the overall event. And it's a sign of respect for the event itself, but for everybody else at the event who has gone to the trouble to find a tuxedo or to make a ball gown in their character's colors. Right. I like to think of it as kind of it's it's formal stealth cosplay. You you take the, the colors of your character and you echo them in the clothing you would wear to that event. Just like the I guess the Disney bound where you go to the park and say you're you're not actually in a Peter Pan costume, but everything you're wearing is the proper colors to match what Peter Pan would wear. Right. Or Ariel or. Yeah. You know, and I've seen some fantastic examples of that, both for casual clothes for wandering the parks, but also at our formal events. Oh, yeah. Where people find the right, you know, for example, it'll be a black tuxedo, but they'll add the proper color waistcoat and tie and accessories to match their character's colors. I love it. And that to me, it's it when it's done right. You're able to to exercise your creativity and go beyond just, oh, I want to be X. But it's, yeah. what do I have to do to be X in this situation where I am properly attired and I am respectful of both the event and everyone else that's there? I love it. Um, <laughs> I have a question that one of my friends wanted me to ask just because I said... Do you have any questions you would ask somebody who's an expert in historical men's wear? No. <laughs> okay. And he said, what is the actual function of a monocle other than stereotypical shorthand for fancy? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, I wear 
I mean, it's it's right. eyeglasses for, you know, if you have, say, myopia in one eye, you get your prescription for that eye. But a lot of times it's purely for magnification purposes and you don't gotcha. wear it. The Wearing it all the time is shorthand for fancy, but you don't wear them all the time. Well, if I think you've it's, ever it's tried shorthand wear, for cartoon fancy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If you've ever tried to wear a monocle for any period of time, you understand that that doesn't work. It's uncomfortable. They just pop out. Not for driving. Oh, no. Not a corrective not. lens for driving. No. Now, I I have one, but it is it is a uh, just a magnifier. But it's nice to have that, you know, on a loop around your neck. And then when you need it, you just pull it out and it's there. Well, I always wonder, too, if it's someone like me who has equally mediocre vision in both eyes. But I often don't wear corrective lenses because I like the world fuzzy. But there are times <laughs> when I need a little bit of magnification right. or, you know, clarity, like if I'm looking at something on yeah. a, during a presentation, then I could use a monocle. Yes. Yes, you could. Or uh, I have a pair of pince-nez. Yeah. And when I got them, I thought that they were just somebody's really weird prescription. And I took them to my eye doctor mm-hmm. with the express purpose of asking, could I get my prescription in these? Right. And I could, you know, clean up and they're missing the cork pieces that go over the nose. Gotcha. But she looked at them and said, no, these are both three times magnifiers. This was not someone's everyday wear. Oh. This was probably a jeweler or a watchmaker, someone who needed that type of magnification. Gotcha. So I've left them as is, and they are wonderful if I need to read something. And I've got my, at some point I will need reading glasses. So I've got, you <laughs> know, I wear the contacts. trombone a little bit like <laughs> I am where you do the. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's when I'm wearing my contacts or glasses, but. I can whip out the pince-nez and read the incredibly tiny fine print. You know, you're trying to see who manufactured something. Right. And you can just pop those out and they're perfect. Those little uh, identifying numbers on Apple products seem like they're shrinking yes. every year. Yeah. Um, the, another question I got from that same friend, my friend Brian, was why did the wristwatch become fashionable over the pocket watch? World War One. There you go. We're done. We're done. <laughs> Now, when you were in the trenches fighting the First World War, it was much easier to take your pocket watch and strap it to your wrist so you could quickly see what time it was rather than fumbling through your pockets. Right. And because the soldiers, once again, the soldiers did it, and private individuals saw that and said, I want to do the same thing. But it was it was the fact that it 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 was a necessity during the First World War. Gotcha. For people to do that because the only watches you had were the pocket watches. Now, um, they shifted to you know they started making more and more wrist watches and pocket watches became less popular. But they're still I mean I'm wearing one now. They're still yeah. out there and available and popular and I like them. I am admittedly kind of breaking a rule. <gasps> Because I'm wearing both a pocket watch and a wristwatch. That just means you heart like, time. How many? Well, right. <laughs> but it's, I guess it's it's also one of those fashion rules is you, you know, only wear one timepiece, only wear one, just like you would only wear one set of glasses. You would only wear one right. tie bar. You only wear one tie. There, so there's now you a can certain be, point of going overboard. Now you can be the bow tie and the multiple clocks guy. Right. <laughs> Well, I have to admit there have been times when I've been wearing stuff and wanted to demonstrate the different methods of wearing a bow tie. Right. I mean, uh, not a bow tie, but a, a pocket watch. Mm-hmm. Because I have a, a single Albert chain on now, which gotcha. it has a T-bar on one end that fits in your buttonhole. It's got the long chain that leads to the pocket watch mm-hmm. that's in a pocket. And then there's a drop on it for a fob. Gotcha. And in this case, it's a it's a vintage watch key that would have been used to wind your watch. Gotcha. This watch doesn't require one, but I've, I've found several examples of these. But you can wear it in your upper pocket. You can wear it in your the side pockets on the waistcoat. But then there are so many different types of chains. You've got a double Albert where you've got two long chains where you would attach like a pocket knife or some ah. other item on the other side. And you would still have the T-bar in the middle. 
There are long chains that you would just thread through your button. Gotcha. There are the ribbon fobs that you could wear in either the, the waist level pocket or you could, uh, for example, run the T through your boutonniere and wear the watch in your jacket pocket. Oh, I don't think so I've ever seen that done before. I'm sure I have, and I bet I haven't noticed it. Gomez Adams. He would wear well, his watch. now I feel like a fool. Well, <laughs> I, never, I never realized that, but there's at least one example where he and uh, Morticia are dancing. Uh-huh. And he is dancing so exuberantly that his pocket watch flips out of his uh-huh. jacket pocket and is just dangling there. But I'd always wondered what that little chain was, and then I saw him dancing. But, oh, that's where he wears his watch. Everything and then is illuminated. I keep running across these watch chains, and if all you knew of wearing it in your pocket, you'd realize that's far too short. It just doesn't make sense right. because it wouldn't go from the button into the pocket with enough depth for the watch to sit there. Right. No, it's for your to wear in your jacket, your boutonniere. Oh, I love it. Okay, now it's the bonus round. What other yummy and delightful little factoids do you want to share? I've already run across a few of them, like the uh, button-down collars mm-hmm. and the uh, the width of the tie and the width of your lapel. Right. When, when I've been looking through that, that big box of ties, it's almost impossible to tell the era a tie has come from. But what you can not buy, you can tell not by the width of the tie. Mm-hmm. Because that almost remains kind of standard. There will always be really wide ones. There will always be really skinny ones. Right. But you can tell by the length of the tie. Oh, yeah. The 40s were much shorter ties, and then they got longer as time went on. But even then, that's still an inexact. So right. It's, you know, manufacturers, put dates on things, <laughs> please. You don't think it's important, but... 20, 30 years from now, someone will be running across your items and want to know when it was manufactured. Yeah. Well, then you also, though, get into the thing where a lot of things are not manufactured. They are either made by, like, you know, one person doing a one-off or... I know I run into a lot of those when I shop vintage. Like, I can tell, like, oh, somebody made this. You know, right, but themselves there's no label, and there's, there's no, no it's yeah. really hard to age. Yeah. Usually I end up having to try to guess based on the textile that was used. Right. Like I can say, oh, this is, you know, a, a slubby silk that was popular in the late 60s. Exactly. You know, and but, but even it, that, it's a guess because a lot of times, especially in modern era, people like to reproduce exactly. those old popular, um, textiles. But that's, that's an important point though, knowing when certain materials were used as the the primary material for a certain item yeah. does help date because you know at least you know rayon was invented you know in the 40s right. so it's not going to be something from the 20s or 30s because this just wasn't around then or actually well rayon was probably invented earlier than that but i don't know i i associate it start with 40s 50s but I have no basis for that. That's yeah, just my I brain just... shuffling stuff around. So don't take any of that as, uh, no, <laughs> as accurate. Um, uh, do you ever go bananas like when people are mixy-matchy with their eras, even if it's all historical, does it bug you? I mean, let's yeah. say outside of, they're not trying to like represent, oh, I'm Victorian and they clearly have on something that's out of time. But just in general, if their style well, is yeah. vintage old and they mix too many periods, does it make you cuckoo? A little bit. I mean, well, for example, and this is mainly not knowing what they really are or how to wear them. Right. But seeing people wear really thick neckties Mm -hmm. as if they are ascots. Uh, oh. Just looks odd. I don't know if I've ever seen that, but now I'm going to keep an eye out. And the other thing is, um, I have seen people wear it's, uh, I've heard it referred to as different things, but I, I know it as a stock. And oh, that's yeah. your neck cloth. It's right. just really, 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 really long. Right. And you wrap it around your neck a couple of times. Right. And if you only wrap it, say, twice, you get a really big bow. If you wrap it three times, you get a smaller bow. There are many different things you can do with it. 
But what you shouldn't do is just wrap it around once and loop it over like it's an ascot to tuck into your collar. Oh. Because then you have a piece that goes down to about your knees that you're having to stuff inside your <laughs> shirt. Because I, I I had to help somebody with that because they, they thought it was just an ascot, but it just seemed wrong to them to because it yeah. was too long. And it's like, well, that's because it is. You're supposed to wear it this particular way, but they didn't want to loop it around their, you know, they didn't like things on their neck like that. Right. So it's like, well, here's something you can do to wear it and not be as tight <laughs> with it. But it's also not, you know, you're not having to stuff it down and wrap it around your waist. Right. Out of the way. That's like maybe the big piece of wisdom, right? Like, let logic be your guide. If it seems really funky, you're probably yes. doing it wrong. Yes. And then take take that step back and maybe try and do a little bit of research and take a look. I mean, we did. <laughs> but, uh, but a, lo- a big problem is people selling things. Oh, yeah. Mislabeled because they don't understand what they are. I can't tell you how many cufflinks I have run across. And those are air quotes with my fingers. Yeah. That are actually shirt studs. Huh. Because they have, there's a, there's a certain style of shirt stud that has a long piece behind the stud that's got a little spring loaded bit. Those are studs to hold your shirt together or your waistcoat together. They are not cufflinks. They don't work as (laughs) cufflinks. If you even try them once as cufflinks, you will understand, oh, this must be something else. My sleeve is real flappy. And yet you will find them all over eBay and Etsy and other, you know, and antique stores Listed labeled as cufflinks. cufflinks and huh. they're actually studs. That's one of the things that even got me into buying things as examples. Because when I was trying to find items for myself, I kept finding things mislabeled and misidentified. Right. Like a, a very long stock slash neck cloth sold as an ascot. Well, Ascots are one thing. They're the double bladed. <laughs> a stock has no blades. It's just one really long piece of cloth. Right. And, and those have been around forever. Exactly. I mean, if you look at colonial wear, if you look at yep. European uh, Rococo era, they're just, they're floating about like oh, air. Yeah. And they, they really look great. Yeah. But you have to learn how to wear them in time. I finally bought myself one. It's kind of a lavender, a light purple, just so I could learn how to play with it. And it's, you know, you can do all manner of bows. You can still do a standard, you know, you can loop it around your neck a couple of times, but you can do any kind of knot once you've done that. Right. And they're just, they're, they are, I guess, more Regency era, mm-hmm. but they definitely add a certain amount of class to whatever you're wearing. I love it. I love it. Jason, thank you so much for sharing all of your vast knowledge with us. And I know that's mm. not actually all of it. There's tons more. Well, um, this, this was fun. I'm. Glad to have the chance. Where can people find you? Uh, well, uh, I run a company called Blackbird Finery, and we're at blackbirdfinery.com, and I'm on Etsy and Facebook. My sideline is Blackbird Finery, and I occasionally do uh, shows here in town, like the uh, Speakeasy Electro Swing or any right. steampunk events. And I, I will be uh, joining with some other folks to vend at the Sunday in the Park at Oakland Cemetery in October. Oh, it's just spectacular. I, I'm missing it this year. I keep always getting scheduled out of town when it I've, happens. I've never been. But, oh, it's but beautiful. my friends approach me to, to, we're going to get a couple of tents. And so I'll have the gentleman's accessories. I have a friend who sells shaving gear. Oh, so fun. And so he and I are going to share a tent. And then there's some other, both uh, women's jewelry and handmade soaps and candles and things like that. I so love it. No, I'm super bummed I was missing it. I was already bummed, but, uh, you know, duty calls. In any case, Jason, thank you so much. What a treat for us to get to hang out with somebody who's a pro on this stuff. All right, well, thank you very much. I love it. Uh, and with that, we'll bid you adieu. So there you have it. If you have thought about venturing into vintage dressing, maybe this will give you some ideas and inspiration. And if you've been dabbling in historical clothing, we hope this has given you some new ideas. Holly, do you also have listener mail to top all this off? I do indeed. And I also want to mention to um, our listeners that in the show notes, that fabulous James Bond website where they talk about his suits in detail, 
uh, and serious detail about like the tailoring and who did it, that is going to be in our show notes. So never fear. My listener mail is from our listener Renata. And she says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I have been a listener to your podcast since the past year, and I absolutely love it. But this episode was particularly exciting to hear. She is referring to the pastry war. She says, the reason behind that is that I'm Mexican and I also live in Veracruz. I enjoyed a lot listening to this again since I studied the pastry war in high school, and I haven't revisited that bit of history again until now. And I actually didn't know all that you mentioned about Santa Ana's leg. Also, hearing my hometown mentioned in your podcast was amusing and kind of surreal since you rarely hear of Veracruz outside of Mexico's news. I actually visit San Juan de Elua, uh, which I always worry that I'm pronouncing terribly, that's my note, uh, fairly often since it is now a museum and one of the tourist highlights of Veracruz. So every time someone comes to visit me, I take them there. Uh, speaking of San Juan de Elua, I, it would be pretty awesome if you did a podcast of the place sometime uh, along with this episode. It has a lot of stories to offer. As you mentioned, it was first a fort, but later it became a prison. And let me tell you, being a prisoner in there must have been the worst thing that could happen to you. When you visit now, the tourist guide will explain to you how the prison was divided between different levels, heaven, purgatory, and hell, and each of them was awful in its own way. The walls are very thick and the cells only have a few very tiny windows, so if you so you didn't get a lot of fresh air in there. To make it worse, Veracruz has a very hot and humid tropical weather, and this was practically at the sea, so the prison cells were always full of salty water and human waste from the prisoners. It was a disgusting place, full of disease, and if you add to that the tortures of the pri- that the prisoners had to endure, well, it is no surprise that people didn't last very long there. It was one of the most feared places to end up in. It was said that no one could escape. It was well guarded, and on top of that, there were sharks around, so your chances of getting out in one piece were pretty much non-existent. There is one urban legend, though, about one man who managed to get out of San Juan de Elua, not once, but twice. His nickname was Chucho El Roto. Again, I hope I'm saying that correctly. And he is remembered as some sort of a Mexican Robin Hood. Although we know that he definitely existed, details of how his life ended are actually unclear, and that's why he's such a popular figure. Anyway, I just wanted to share all this with you just to show how very excited I was with this episode. If you didn't know this little bit of history that I shared, I hope you find it interesting and maybe it encourages you to put it on the maybe we'll do an episode on this someday list. And if you did know, I'm sorry for the long email. Uh, I did not know I had never heard that story before and it does sound really fascinating. So I do kind of want to look into it. Um, thank you, Renata, for like a local take on something that we talked about in the episode. We don't always get those, particularly when they are outside of the U.S. So that's some cool insight into sort of that that prison and then fortresses uh, place in the bigger story of Mexican history. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can absolutely do that. And you should. You can do that at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history. At Pinterest.com slash History, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at MissedInHistory. If you would like to visit our parent company, you can do that. That is HowStuffWorks.com. You can research almost anything you can think of there. If you would like to visit us at our little corner of the World Wide Web, that is at MissedInHistory.com. You will find show notes and uh, an archive of every episode that has ever happened and the occasional other goodie. Uh, so we encourage you, come visit us at MissedInHistory.com and at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.